would turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I'd like to concentrate particularly on verse 12 this morning. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Word of God. The epistle of Paul to the Philippians cannot be read without remembering the heart that is written here. Paul starts the letter off talking about grace and peace unto them, which you may, uh, if you read enough of the letters of Paul, have become very familiar with. It may even become tired. You may run right over it before thinking it through. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and talks about how their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until then was something that he always thanked God for, that he was always thanking God for this particular church. He goes on and continues to talk about how he greatly longed for them and and missed them deeply. He goes on even further to start this chapter and talks about and pleads with them and says, if there's any consolation, if you have any consolation in Christ, if you have any comfort in love, if you have any fellowship in the Spirit, and if you have any bowels and mercies, if any of these things are those ties that bind you all together, And then he gives some exhortations. I don't have time this morning to address them, but maybe if you all were interested in going down to Columbia this afternoon, we might get to see more fully. But for the moment, I'd like you to consider what it is that he is urging them to do. Because we do talk often in this church and together in our private conversations, and as it's been preached many times from this pulpit, the importance of recognizing where it is our salvation comes from. It doesn't say here to acquire your salvation. And it doesn't say either to finish your salvation. It says to work out your salvation. Before we get into uh, the, the context that's given just before that, I'd like to consider what's being said here. Now, he's not saying, like, to work out your problems. Go work out your problems. No, that's saying to solve things. You're not here to solve your salvation. He's talking about something that already exists. So you can kind of fill in the blank a few times. You can take out the word salvation as you try to go through the understanding of what Paul is urging you here to do as a loving minister who loves his flock and wants them to have every benefit. Everything from that wonderful companionship we have together, the companionship you would have with the Lord, the better understanding, the blessings that come from a righteous life. But more than anything else, the rewards that we have waiting for us in heaven, if we're able to do those things, which were naturally impossible for us, which is namely to obey God. Bear that in mind for a moment while you consider replacing the word salvation with something else. So if you are convinced that you are fairly intelligent, and you were to say, work out your own intelligence, well, in what category? Let's say you have an ability with linguistics and you're good with languages. Well, how would you work out your ability to work, to know how to work languages better? Well, the best way to do that would be to learn languages and to fluently uh, speak a language with someone who knows it even better than you until you're to the point where it, you're, it, it's indistinguishable between the two languages. Or if you were, say, good at math, maybe you go to school and you continue to educate yourself in that. Or if you have, as some might have said by the poets at different times, music in your soul and you just want to hear it played. Well, how would you work that out of you? You would learn through much difficulty, the instruments that you might be able to use to reveal that, and then you would practice and play, and then you would continue to reveal that to the world and bring out, from seemingly nothing, beautiful music into the world. See, as you work out your salvation, you're supposed to be revealing something which already exists. But what is that something? Well, first, before that, let's jump up. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind is that? Well, before that, he had just said, look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. 
and let this mind be in you. So the mind is that you're not just considering yourself, but it is a mind of true and right humility. This doesn't mean that you don't pay attention to your own long-term financial investments. It just means you care that the people around you are also able to succeed. This doesn't mean you don't concentrate on your own health. It just means that the health of those who are near and dear to you matters, and you also seek for them to have it just as good. You don't just look to your own things. But the example given here is, says that God, that Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. And he goes through a number of things that happen here. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read through it and not elaborate on it too much. But he says, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And that is your form. Your form. The right form of you is the form of a servant. He reduced himself from being God to being a man. Now, one of the things that's difficult to comprehend about that is the reduction in a mental faculties. If you were suddenly transformed into a worm, you wouldn't be able to think the thoughts you currently think because the being itself that houses you is significantly less. Consider the humiliation to your person of only being able to think basic thoughts, like a worm thinks. Well, the distance that a worm is below you is significantly closer than the distance between you and God. And that God came down, and he didn't just come down as a fully grown man, the way that we started, the way Adam started as a fully grown man. No, he went back to the very beginning, to your weakest form, to being a baby. Think about what humility, what, what grace, what kindness, and why did he do it? Well, it's going to go on to say, but it says that, and being found in a fashion of a man, he humbled himself. Wait a minute. So after he became like a man, he then humbled himself again. And it says, he became obedient unto death. Obedient unto death. And the magic word there is obedient. And if there's one thing I could indelibly burn into your minds this morning, it would be the impossibility of that word, obedience, for you to do it. For Jesus came to be obedient. That one thing you cannot do. That one thing that is the working out of your salvation. It says, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What great humiliation. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. So Paul's telling a story here. See, when Jesus came and died, he didn't do it just to be humiliated. He did it because he saw a greater reward on the other side. No one in the scriptures talks about reward more than Jesus Christ himself. So don't think it wrong for you to be concentrated on those things that Jesus himself pushes you towards. It's just that you need to have the right rewards in mind. All of humanity's failings have been based on an improper view of what right rewards are. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, but they didn't understand that if they obeyed God, that was the long-term plan. They lost those things that were like God when they died. They lost the very thing they were seeking to pursue. And the most important thing about being like God is to be like him and to be near him. They lost that fellowship, that wonderful blessing of being like him and near him and growing to be close to him all as their life would have continued and continued and never died. But instead, that very day, they were separated from God. Why? Because of disobedience. And that disobedience continues to reign in the heart of man, and it should reign in you, if not for divine intervention. And he says, this glory, it says that the name that God gave him, now the subject of names being given in the Bible is a very big deal. Whenever God names somebody or gives a name to somebody, you need to pay very close attention. I suggest always looking up the meaning of the word. But here, it's, the way this is worded in the English is a little confusing. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But it's like saying that um, 
at the presence of Jesus, all men should bow. The word name there isn't saying that the name is Jesus. But if you go on to the next verse, you'll see what's being explained here. It says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, when Jesus came, he didn't come as Jehovah. He came as the Son of God, the humble servant. But he wasn't originally coming as God the Father with that same glory. He came, and not to say that wasn't the point in the end, but he came as Jesus Christ, the obedient servant. But look at the blessing that he was to gain for his obedience. It says that that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Jesus Christ didn't just come to be humbled. He didn't just come for your gain. He also came and gained reward himself. Things he could not have otherwise gotten had he not obeyed the Father. Now, he could have stayed in heaven. He could have. The point here is that he obeyed. He obeyed his Father, and he did exactly as he said. He didn't think it robbery that he was equal to God. But he saw the long term. And so, with that in mind, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed. As ye have always obeyed. It says, Not in my presence only, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. When you're in the presence of a preacher, or when you're in the presence of an open Bible, or when you're here at church, we think slightly differently. And Paul's pointing that out here. And it's good to be honest about it, that we naturally are suddenly more righteous when we're in the presence of someone whose life has been dedicated to that. And so in the presence of Paul, they were obedient. And what he's urging them here towards is to work much harder to be obedient when he wasn't there than when he was. And how much more? And he's complimenting them here. He's not saying you guys are having trouble with this. No, he's saying, as you have been obedient, as always you have been. And he reminds them again of the joy he takes in their presence. He says that you should be working doubly hard and pursuing with all uh, haste and desire to work out your salvation by obeying exactly as you had done before. Now this working out of your salvation, again, if you find yourself a strong person, you can go to the gym and you can work out your strength and have it be manifested in your physical body. Isn't that a wonderful and a beautiful thing? But how do you work out your salvation? Well, as was explained there, it starts by the working that Jesus revealed in his own actions, by obeying God, that thing which was first and foremost most impossible. But how do you know if you're obeying God? How is it possible to find out? Is it that there's a ringing in your heart that makes it self-evident? Sometimes. But the heart is wicked and deceitful. And it will do its best to duplicate that at times when you are ready to deviate and to leave him. And the, that ring that seems to come of truth, it's your heart lying to you. And so how do you find out? What is your litmus test? How do you check your temperature? Do you just go and, and feel your head and find out? No. You get something outside yourself. There's something better than this, though. I'd like to consider the heart and who works it. The next verse is going to get into this in more detail, but... It says in the Proverbs that the fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. Lord trieth the hearts. Now those are great, great substances there. The Proverbs goes on to talk about how wisdom is greater even than the returns that can be had of silver and gold. Silver and gold are a really important subject throughout the course of the Proverbs. And so it's saying that those most rich substances that exist in the world, they're worked by somebody. They're worked by somebody to be made more and more pure. But the way that silver is worked as it's heated is that the master who works it keeps the temperature even and hot. But as it's being cleansed, as imperfections are revealed, they don't suddenly just fall away to the sides and get hidden away. It's the opposite. It's that in the presence of the master's working, all the imperfections come to the surface. And they're actually the only thing you can see when you look at the silver. 
It's a tragic thing. But the master scoops them out and removes them. And by the time his work is done, when he looks down into that container of silver, the only thing he can see back is a nearly perfect impression of his own face. That is, beloved, the exact thing which we hope to have done in us. It says here, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, why would he say this after saying to work out your own salvation? Because you should take comfort in any good in you, but you shouldn't take credit. There's a particular distinction there, right? You should be glad that God has been working your heart such that you desire to do good. But don't allow the doctrines of grace and the teachings that we have to better understand salvation become a stumbling block and prevent you from working out your salvation and doing good. If your heart moves to do right and good, do it. But where is that reflection of the master? How is it that we can see him? How is it that you ever are able to know when you're doing wrong? Well, it talks about how when we're gone and when we're dead and when we're in heaven, the greatest hope the most wonderful thing we have to, to know about there isn't just that all the tears we wiped away from our eyes, but it's this. It's that we shall see him as he is. And how? How will it be that we can see him as he is? Well, it says that, for we shall be like him. For you don't know him, and you don't know right from wrong if you don't know him. And so I urge you, seek your salvation. For it, here it's revealed, it talks about the gospel being the light of salvation, that to you and to your eyes, as you study his word, salvation is being revealed, but also those wretched ways of sin in our hearts are being revealed. But that isn't the point. The point of the word isn't to reveal you, it's to reveal God. Jesus didn't come down and die for you just so you can have more of yourself. It's so you can finally have him. So I would urge you, beloved, to remember that it is God which worketh in you, to will and to do of his good pleasure, but that also that you seek him you seek to obey him, that you seek to work out your salvation, that you get to enjoy the wonderful rewards which God has laid aside for them. There's a reason why he went so far out of his way to not just promise, but to give rewards. It's the way he built existence itself, that diligence has a natural byproduct of riches. It just, it has to happen. If you work hard and you're wise, you will, by necessity, grow in wealth. It's the way that he built things. Because there was a way things were before there was sin in the world. And so likewise, your work before God has to receive reward, so long as your work is honest and true. But when you went into the working world, you didn't know everything about how work was supposed to be done, nor how work was most profitable. But the only proofs you have of this are in two places, in the word of God and in each other. And so that's why it goes on to say, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Don't let anything, anything, start to get in between you and the beloved because the rewards that are waiting for you are worth so much more than a sliver of gossip or seeming like the smart person who's able to pass those things on but more than that that you may be blameless harmless the sons of god without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world and so holding forth the word of life that i may rejoice in the day of christ that i have not run in vain neither labored in vain for it's not just your reward that Paul or your pastor desires for you. He also desires his own right back. For what pleasure will your pastor have if he sees you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? See, in some things, we can buy immediate pleasure. You can buy a bag of potato chips or something to drink or something to eat that provides you immediate pleasure. You can multiply that by doing that with someone else who gets to also enjoy that and enjoy your presence. But there are things we can do in the, which the, mul- the, the multiplication of pleasure is beyond your comprehension. Because if you are taking pleasure in God 
And your pastor is taking pleasure in you, taking pleasure in that. And so are we. Also, God is taking pleasure in us. And these are things which have no end. The things that God is glad about will have no end. That meal will die. Some of them will make you sick. Some of them will make you unhealthy. Right? All things we do below, we have pleasure mixed with pain, as the song says. But this one thing, there is no losing. You cannot lose your heavenly reward. And the pleasure and the joy and the happiness goes on forever and ever and ever. And so I'm not asking you um, to create your salvation. I'm not asking you to lay aside all the work you do here below for your family and for your long-term wealth. But I'm just asking you to bear in mind the greatest rewards and to work on those first. Thank you for your time. I'm going to continue on in the book of Philippians. I'm going to back up to the first chapter. But before we do that, I want to look at the start of the church at Philippi, how the church started. We acknowledge and we recognize that God's word is inspired by God. But when we read the uh, Philippian letter that Paul wrote, Paul himself makes reference that he is writing this letter and he's writing it as he's in bonds, as he's in prison. But he's also, as he writes this letter, his affection comes out and is manifest in his writing. So in addition to it being inspired by God, you can see the the passion that Paul has for this group of people, this church at Philippi. And so if we go back and look at how this church started and we consider how God used Paul in the beginning of this church, you'll see why he has such passion in wanting them to grow in the Lord and in the knowledge of the truth and in the joy of the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. So let's go back to Acts chapter 16. And there are specifically two, maybe three events right here that as we can look back, we can see looking back on this, that God was using Paul in the beginning of this church. Now it starts out in Acts chapter 16 and we'll go down to verse uh, nine well, right before that, I think it's interesting that Paul had a desire to go uh, into different areas to preach. It says that uh, they were uh, they had a desire to go into certain places in Asia and preach. But it says they were actually forbidden to go there by the Holy Ghost. And then it comes down and says in verse nine, it says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Now, many of you've heard my experience in that verse that led me to uh, was a big part of leading me to come to Maryland and to Mount Carmel. And if you haven't, I'm happy to share with it, uh, share it with you afterwards. It was such a profound and moving experience that it not only Uh, impressed me to come, but has helped me uh, through the years and encouraged me through the years when maybe I would have seasons of discouragement. Paul had a tremendous experience right here. 
God was working with Paul and God was impressing Paul. And God sometimes gives us these special moments in our life, these special experiences in our life that not only help us right at that time, but we can go back and glean on those experiences later on as we need them throughout our life. Every one of us here have experienced uh, various deliverances by God. And so if you're going through a difficult time or you're experiencing a difficult time, let your mind travel back to some of those profound experiences of God's grace when God blessed you and touched your life in a mighty way. Now, look at what happens right here in Paul beginning to be used of God to start the church at Philippi. It says that the spirit bade Paul in a vision to come over and help into Macedonia. Paul had no idea as he was being led to Macedonia of what would unfold. Paul didn't know as he was being impressed to go to Macedonia that he was going to end up in jail. My former pastor, who's now with the Lord, said that almost everywhere that Paul went, he ended up in jail for preaching the gospel. He said, I expect that he probably, uh, as he went to a new city or a new town, he probably went by the jail first because he knew that he'd probably end up there before it was over with. Well, that was his experience right here. Here he says that the spirit bade him go, that in a vision he was impressed to go, and it was as profound to him as it said, come over and help us. And it says immediately after, uh, it says uh, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia. Now Philippi was there in Macedonia. It says we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Even at that point, Paul didn't know who he was going to be preaching the gospel to. It says, therefore, loosing from us, uh, from Troas, we came with a straight course. Um, it says, uh, and, and verse 12 says, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of the part of Macedonia, a colony. And it says, we were in that city abiding certain days. Now you're going to see how God begins to use Paul right here in the beginning of the church at Philippi. It says, and on the Sabbath, Sabbath day, we went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and we spake unto women which resorted thither. It says that on the Sabbath day that they went out uh, by the river, they saw some women that were by the river and these women were praying and they began to commune with these women. And it says the woman's name was Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. And it's interesting right here in verse 14, it says that when he met this group of folks, these folks that were praying, it says he acknowledged that it says who which worshiped God, he says, which worshiped God, they heard us. And it says, whose heart the Lord opened. It's interesting right here that even Paul recognizes right here that the spirit of God had touched the heart of Lydia before the message that Paul brought forth. And Paul acknowledged that God touches the heart, tenders the heart, and he still does that today. 
We're not going to have a desire, an appreciation, an interest in the things of God without God touching and changing our heart. And so what Paul is saying right here, he said, I give God the credit for touching the heart. He says, whose heart the Lord opened. It says, and she heard the things of Paul. She heard the message of Jesus Christ. She heard about baptism. It's evident that she did because it says when she heard these things, it says she was baptized and it not only had uh, an impact upon her, but on those that were in her house as well. So she had, uh, she had uh, some of her family that was there. It says that when she heard these things, she was baptized. And it says, uh, she, she besought us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, she said, come to my house and abide there. And she constrained us. She wanted to know more about the Lord. She wanted to know more about Jesus Christ. She wanted to know more about the message of God's grace. She wanted to know more about how that it would affect her life from that point on. And she said, would you stay around just a little bit while longer so that we can learn more about the things of the Lord. Paul said he acknowledged that the spirit of God touched her heart and tendered her heart and gave her an appetite for the things of God. This was Paul's first experience with the beginning of the church at Philippi. I have to tell you, I'm all about reading about God blessing and starting churches. We worship the same God today that they worshiped back then. And I believe that God is still in the business of starting churches and blessing churches and blessing them to grow and prosper. And you have as a witness to that in your life, the little church at Southampton. God blessed it from the beginning. God used you in the beginning. And today it's a prosperous church. And not only uh, with a pastor, Brother Andy, but now God is raising up new ministers out of of that church. So God is still in the business of starting churches. I'm all about going through the scriptures and seeing where God used folks to start churches. About a month ago, I received the report that the little church that I'd first been taken to with my grandparents at five years old that I remember. I went when I was two, but I don't remember much about that. But I remember it more when I was five years old. The little church that I went to in a little rural West Texas town. That the last deacon had passed away and his wife. And that they'd closed the building. And they'd closed the doors and they'd sold the building. And it grieved my heart. Now those little towns of West Texas, the young people, the little towns have just about in many areas dried up. Little town that I grew up in, you drive down through Main Street and it's like a ghost town. The only thing that's still there is the bank. I'm surprised it's still there. But all the other buildings are boarded up and it's like a ghost town. I'm not exaggerating on that. You can, you can probably Google it and see. People couldn't get employment. They moved to the larger cities. The young folks moved away. The old people died off. And the churches have declined to the point that many of them have closed their doors. And it's, it's a sad state. Well, I'd much rather focus on the Lord starting churches. I'd much rather be used to the Lord to start churches. I, I, we were up in upstate New York several years ago. And, and one brother told me, he said, well, that church over there was, uh, I'm not sure what order it was, but he said, um, um, they closed the church and before they sold the building, 
they had a service to desanctify the building. Not sure how you'd go through a desanctification process. I'm all about focusing on the Lord starting churches, and I pray that He'll use each one of us here to start churches. I pray that He will. Well, Paul was being used right here to start a church, and he didn't even know it. So he met with Lydia, her household. They were baptized. They said, Would you stay a while longer? It says, uh, and it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us and brought much. It says, which brought, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. I, I believe that probably what that meant is she was like a fortune teller and would, would tell their future. I, I believe that there's probably still folks that fall into this category even today. And by the way, if that is the case, and we're taught in 1 John, it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. It says some of the spirits are not of God. There's some ungodly spirits. And I'll tell you, I do believe that Christians have no business, zero business, associating with folks of an ungodly spirit. Listen, you want to know your future? You go to the Lord. You go to God's word. He tells you what your future is. If you want to know what your future is, go to the Lord's word and go to the Lord. Well, it says that Paul was grieved by this lady. It says, this same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, these men are servants of the most high. And and which it says, which show us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. But it says, Paul being grieved. Turn and said to her, uh, he said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this ungodly spirit come out of her. And it says, and he came out of her that same hour. And it says that her masters, those that she worked for, that she brought much gain to, they were upset. And it ended up that uh, they drew Paul and Silas unto the marketplace, unto the rulers. And it says, They brought them to the magistrates and they accused them. They said, these men being Jews do exceeding trouble our city. They're teaching customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And it says, and the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent their clothes and commanded to beat them. So Paul is being uh, is being beaten. He's suffering persecution For the things of God. He's suffering for righteousness sake right here. And it says. And when they had laid many stripes on them. They cast them into the prison. Charging the jailer to keep them safely. Now I do. I I don't believe. I'm not an absoluter. I do not believe that God. That we're like a puppet. And God is working everything out. But I do believe that the, teacher, the scriptures teach that God is in charge and God is in control. And in this experience right here, God is using this experience that Paul is about to be engaged in and to be used in for the fatherance and the beginning of the church at Philippi. 
You already see the first little family that's right here, Lydia and her household. Now you're going to begin to see some more charter members of the church at Philippi. Mount Carmel goes all the way back to 1934. There's only one person that's still living, Brother Phil's aunt, Jeanette, that's still living that was here when the church was constituted. Sister Perry, who's 103 years old, uh, came here when the church was 15 years old. Here's some folks that went all the way back to the beginning of the church at Philippi. And Paul was there to experience it. So Paul ends up in jail. It says, now I haven't yet ended up in jail. But I hope if I do, I hope I don't, but I hope if I do that, that I remember what Paul did. It says that the jailer had been charged to keep them safely, put them in the back part of the jail. And it says, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And it says at midnight, well, wouldn't you like to have such a relationship with God that even in the greatest trials of your life, that you pray and sing. You know, I, I, I'd probably be thinking, I mean, really, you know, here I was going to preach the gospel and I end up in jail. I, 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 I didn't really think that that's how it's supposed to be. But God uses this experience to actually father the beginning of the church at Philippi. Look what it says right here. It says at midnight... Paul and Silas prayed. They sang praises unto God. And he says, and the prisoners heard them. You know what? Not only were they there in jail, but that the Lord was there with them. You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace, the Lord was there with them as well. And God was with Paul and Silas here. It says at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and, he, and, and, and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Do you know that probably those old songs, whatever the songs were that Paul and Silas were singing, whatever prayers they were praying, I expect if any of those prisoners had a heart for the Lord, or if the Lord had touched their heart, it blessed their souls. Look at what happens right here. It says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew his sword not to kill them, but to kill himself because he knew that he had been charged to keep them and his life was on the line. And it says he he woke out of his sleep. He saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword that he would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. This was the experience that Paul was experiencing right here with the beginning of the church at Philippi. No wonder he had a heart for the people after experiencing this. 
Look at what it says. And Paul cried out. And he said, do thyself no harm. For we're all here. Paul cried with a loud voice and he said, do thyself no harm. And then he called for a light and and sprang in. And he came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you know what? Lord had already touched his heart for him to even say that and have that desire. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. You know, I think it's, it's really a blessing right here. It's really worthy to note right here that both Lydia and her household and the jailer and his household were affected by the gospel message. I think that's a real blessing. It is a, it, it, it's an added and it's a great and it's a wonderful blessing when families are able to worship together. It really is. That's a great blessing. Don't take it lightly and don't take it for granted if you're blessed in that. When I go to one of the greatest joys that I get when I go to New Mexico and we have services out there is I have several cousins, second cousins that come and we get to worship together. And that just adds to it. It's an extra blessing. It is. Well, here, the jailer and his household, it says, he took them that same hour of the night and baptized, it says, and and washed their stripes, and it says, washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And it goes on down to say that those that were the jailer and his family and Lydia and her household. The last verse says, and when they went out of the prison, they entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and they departed. That is the beginning of the church at Philippi. That shows us why that Paul had such a passion and heart for these people. Paul himself had a vested interest in this group of folks at Philippi. Now he starts out this way. Paul and Timotheus, Timothy did not write this letter, but Timothy approved of this letter. Paul writes it because he and Timothy were on the same page Paul and Timothy were just like this. And it says that grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, and this is loaded. Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. His mind probably, as he was writing this letter, traveled all the way back to where when he saw Lydia and the ladies that were praying by the seaside, by the riverside. His mind probably traveled all the way back and said, I remember how that I ended up in jail when we casted out an ungodly spirit and we were in jail And we remember how that the most unlikely person there 
was shown, showing evidence of the spirit of God and was converted to the things of the Lord. And that being the jailer and his household. And his mind traveled all the way back to those precious experiences. And he says, so I thank my God for you. Those experiences add a whole lot. Yesterday, I had the blessing of talking to Brother Balkum on the phone, a deacon up at Southampton that was there when the church started. He was the first one, as I mentioned, when the, when the church began to, when there were, he was the first one that had an interest at all. And I remember, and my mind travels back to meeting Brother Balkum. He's now an old man. He's about my age, what I am now when we first met. So I can see what's going to happen in a few years. But I remember meeting in a little diner in Clinton, New Jersey. Brother Balkum said, I grew up in the church in North Carolina, just as vivid and clear as if it was yesterday. He said, I grew up in a church in North Carolina. We were members of the old Bear Creek Association, one of the longest associations that there is. He said, but I went in the service, I moved away, I married my wife, and I moved to an area where there were no churches. And he said, for over 40 years, I've been without the fellowship of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And he said, I've come to realize that I may never experience what I experienced in my youth growing up. That was the beginning of the church at Southampton. God began to add to the desire that he used Brother Balkum with. God still starts churches today the same way he did with Southampton and with the church at Philippi. Paul said, I think my God upon every remembrance of you. And he said, I'm praying for you. He says, I'm praying and making request, I think this is pretty, pretty neat that Paul can say this right here. Paul says, I'm praying for you. And he says, when I pray for you, he says, I make request with joy for you. I think that's, that's pretty special. And Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded. And he says, I'm, I'm thankful for your fellowship in the gospel. And I think this is pretty neat right here that Paul says, I'm thankful for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day. Paul says, it's it's pretty special to me that God used me in the very beginning from the first day, he says, until now. And Paul says, I'm confident about something. So I've come to realize that the things that Paul's confident about that he shares with us, he shares with us because he wants us to be confident about this as well. Paul says, I'm confident about something. He says, I'm confident about this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you both in my heart, in so much as in my bonds, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, which uh, ye are all partakers of my grace. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, I can witness that God has done a work of grace in your life. 
And he says, I don't believe you're going to fall from grace. I don't believe he's going to lose you at all. But I believe that God is going to keep you. God is going to uh, preserve you. And God is going to present you righteous and holy before almighty God. And he said, I'm confident of this. He's not saying right here, I'm confident that you're going to walk in the right way 100% of the time. But he says, my confidence is in the Lord. If your confidence is in the flesh, you're going to be greatly disappointed, quickly disappointed. But if your confidence is in the Lord, he says, I'm confident that God who began the work is going to complete the work. God finishes what he, what he starts. Amen. He does. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. This letter was written by Paul in prison and delivered to the church at Philippi. And they're reading this letter. And Paul even goes on down to tell them, this is such a good, it's a great letter. Read uh, all of chapter one. It will be a super blessing for you, if you will. In fact, there's just four little chapters here. All four chapters will be really, really good. But Paul steps back and this is what he says right here. Paul says... Here is my prayer, my desire. This is my delight. This is my goal for you. Paul said, this is it. Paul said, this is what I do, what I do for this reason. This is why I suffer in prison. This is why I suffer for uh, preaching the gospel. He says, I pray. He gives us a really good prescription right here. He not only tells us what his desire is, but then he tells us how to achieve it. What a great blessing. And Brother John just brought a whole loaded us with a lot in chapter two. Paul says, here's my desire for you. He says, and I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. First of all, Paul says, I pray that your love for the Lord is going to grow. He says, I pray your love for each other is going to grow. I pray your love for Jesus Christ is going to grow. I pray your love for his word is going to grow. And I pray that it will abound in you. Paul says, that's my desire for you. And he says that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that, that ye may be sincere and without offense unto the day of Christ and being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Paul is saying right here, he says, I, I pray that you're going to be able to bear a whole lot of fruit. I pray that God will use you to bear fruit to the glory of God. He says, don't be discouraged about my bonds. He says, but I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have happened unto uh, ha which have happened unto me have fallen out unto the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all places and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The apostle Paul is saying right here, don't be discouraged that I ended up in jail for, for preaching the gospel. He said, if it meant that somebody was exposed to the doctrines of grace, if it meant that somebody was encouraged, if it meant that that's what God used to bless a church to get started, he says, don't be discouraged by my bonds and my afflictions. Then he says, some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife and some of goodwill. 
The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add to my affliction and my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. And then Paul comes down, and this is so good right here. The Apostle Paul says, I just simply desire that my life, whatever number of years God gives us, that my life, Lord says generally three score and ten, maybe four score, maybe more than that. Uh, we were having a conversation with Sister Tess. She's one of the uh, young ladies that attends the, uh, the New York meeting. And she said, I just accepted a really super demanding job. And she said, I, I know that for about a year I'm going to have to just be totally dedicated to this job. And she said, I knew that I probably better do it right now because she said, in three years, I just not, may not have the energy to do this. I said, well, how old will you be in three years? She said, I'll be 30. I said, what if you double that? I mean, you're just almost dead, I guess. Well, whatever time that you have, whatever it is, Paul said, here's my desire. He said, I desire, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, he said, I desire that Christ... Not myself, not others. He said, I desire that Christ will be magnified. Several of you here are wearing something that magnifies what you see around. Makes it larger, makes it clearer. Makes it where you can understand it. Paul says, I want my life to point to Christ to where it magnifies Christ. And Paul says... Whether it be by my life, if it is the experiences that I have in life, I pray that my experiences, even if it ends up in jail, that it will magnify Christ. He said, my desire is that whether it's by my life or by my death, that Jesus Christ will be magnified. He's saying, I want to put down self and I want to point to Christ and I want to point others to Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's what he's talking about right here. Oh, this is so good. Now, I use this at funerals a lot, but it's also for those of us that are left. He says, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. And I think this is so neat right here. I don't know what heaven is like. I know what it's not like. There's not going to be any sin and sorrow and death and sadness. And and I know that all those things are taken away. But sometimes my mind is allowed to travel and think about heaven. And I get excited and I rejoice and I get ready to go there. But Paul says right here, he says, no matter what heaven is like, that no matter what the best is that we have here in this life, he says heaven is far better. And he says, "I'm, I'm really in a straight betwixt two. Anybody ever in a straight betwixt two? He says, I'm in a straight betwixt two. You get sick, you get in a straight betwixt two. You get discouraged, you get in a straight betwixt two. You get discouraged about self and other folks, you get in a straight betwixt two. Paul said, I'm in a straight betwixt two. He said, there's part of me that desires to go on and be with the Lord because he says, that's far better. 
But he said, God's kept me here for a reason. And he says, by the way, it's been revealed to me that the reason that I'm still here on this earth. Now, this is for everybody, but it's especially for old folks. This is for the 80 and above right here. I hear folks say sometimes, well, I don't know why I'm still here. I, 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 I'd rather just go on. I don't know why I'm still here. The reason you're still here is that God has you here for a purpose. Amen. And it may not be for your own good, but it's for those that are around you. And this is what he says right here. Paul says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm out of here. I want to go on and be with the Lord because that's far better. But he says, I'm still here because God's put it in my heart and God's enabled me to be here. And he says, I'm still here because it's more needful for you. So the reason you're here is for the benefit of other folks that are around you to be an encouragement and a blessing to those that are around you. If you're still here, you're here for a reason. Not an accident that you're still here. God's had a lot of opportunities to take us on. I mean, uh, just drive up 95 and plenty of opportunities there for the Lord to take us on home. Well, Paul says the reason that it's more needful for you is for the furtherance of your joy and your faith and that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ. Paul just simply says, he just simply says, I I just want you to rejoice in the Lord. He says it again. He says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And he says, and again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. He says, I want you to have a relationship and a fellowship with Jesus Christ. I want you to experience the fullness of it. I want you to experience the fullness of the joy of the Lord. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You may find some temporary satisfactions, some temporary pleasures of uh, of sin for a season. But if you're going to experience the true joy in the Lord, it's in no other place. I'm going to find it any other place than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I'm willing to spend my life to encourage folks in the joy of the Lord. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.